It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, and welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, and I am so excited that you are tuning in today. We are talking about God with us and how this gives us great hope. It is the Advent season, after all. In the last couple weeks, we are talking about love. Today, we are talking about hope. Let me start off with a story that may be familiar to some of you. I don't know if you've ever heard those stories about someone lost at sea. Well, in the summer of 2017, there were two commercial fishermen, John and Anthony, and they were setting out to go fish from Long Island. In fact, they were headed out some 40 miles offshore. And Anthony was sleeping below deck while John was getting things ready for their big catch. They had these big expectations to haul in a lot of fish. So he's pulling on this handle that's connected to the net. And as you might imagine, the handle snaps and sends him flying off the back of the boat. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem because Anthony could have, you know, turned the boat around and gone and picked him up. But John doesn't even have a life preserver. He doesn't have a life jacket. The boat is on autopilot, and it just keeps on cruising. And Anthony is sound asleep. He doesn't hear John screaming at all. So John watches the boat go up and over the crest of the waves, and then it's gone. And just like that, he can't see it anymore. He's alone. He's treading water in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, no life vest, and he's probably thinking at this moment he's going to die. And as you can imagine what he's probably feeling like, the hopelessness of that situation. And so while John is trying to calm down, quiet his thoughts of certain death and panic, He's just trying to stay afloat, and and then he realizes that the boots that he had on were buoyant, so he gets this idea. He, He takes one of them off, he empties it out, and he plunges it back into the water so that it created an air pocket, and it kept him afloat. So he he did this with both boots, put them under his arms as a flotation device, and now he was able to stay afloat. It was a flicker of hope. And then John started to think of his family and the fact that no one anywhere would even know that he was missing, perhaps until it was too late, that as soon as Anthony might actually wake up, come to the top of the boat and realize John's nowhere to be found, would this be too late? And in fact, he he doesn't see anyone. There's, There's not a single boat to be seen. And he's always thinking now, okay, what about these sharks that are swimming away about some 15 feet? Uh, maybe I'm just going to be dinner for them. And so he tries to keep his eyes uh, open and, and scanning the horizon and, and looking for a boat that may see him or an airplane flying over. He starts to set his goal. And if I can just get to the morning, well, four hours later, Anthony wakes up and he realizes that John is gone. He, he immediately calls the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard begin their searching procedures, even though the Coast Guard commander admitted he didn't have much hope of finding John in so much open water. So here on the boat, Anthony then finds this broken handle. He, he knew what John must have been doing at that moment when he went overboard, so he kind of figured out where the depth might have been at that particular time. Well, so he he starts to help the Coast Guard. Let's look in this particular area. Well, John made it alive into the morning, and he tried to keep his hope alive, but the hours just kept on passing, and there's no sign of hope, no sign of help that, that he might finally be rescued. But 
he, he spots a fishing buoy and he's able to, to paddle over to it, get over and climb up on this fishing buoy. He, he has a new surge of hope. He just has to keep on keeping on. He's got to keep his hope alive. Well, in less than an hour later, the Coast Guard helicopter flies nearby and, and spots John hanging on to this fishing buoy and they pull him up to safety and to which he tells him, We've been looking for you for eight hours, this Coast Guard rescue diver tells him. And, and John then says, well, I've been looking for you for 12 hours. So miraculously, John Aldridge survived. And it's an amazing story that they continue to tell to this day. If it were most of us probably bobbing out there alone in the middle of the ocean, we probably would have given up hope that there was not even a sliver of a chance to survive. But hope is like that. You see, hope is the whisper. That maybe, just maybe, these boots will float if I turn them upside down. And, and sometimes we think about what does hope look like in our lives. For some, you know, hope might be that first candle to be lit when the power goes out in the storm. Or, or hope is that first day that you wake up and can breathe again after battling an illness for some, hope is that percentage you do, you have as, you, as you're clinging to life. Maybe you've just beaten cancer and you were that slim percentage that maybe you wouldn't pull through and and hope is that you you have another day and you're you're making progress and you you're finally beating cancer maybe hope is that faint line on the stick when you've been trying to get pregnant for so long maybe it's the first ray of sunshine through your window after a tearful and difficult night maybe it's a, the first soldier to land on a beach, or the hope might be hearing those words, he's, he's going to be okay. You see, hope, or, hope might be that flicker of just the, the maybe, just maybe. And so hope is the fuel of faith and dreams, and hope is what we celebrate on the first Sunday of Advent. And, and looking back to our message a few weeks back, as we were just going through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, to understand love, we, we heard these powerful words in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So for all eternity, we will experience these three attributes. And they seem to be linked together throughout Scripture of hope and faith and love. We see that in Romans chapter 5 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Hebrews 6, 1 Peter 1, just to name a few of faith, hope, and love. So I, it makes sense that we're going to experience God's love this deep love forever and ever, and we'll have faith in the Lord for all eternity. But what about hope? Will we hope for better days? Well, obviously not. The, the meaning of hope here is synonymous with trust. So the noun elphis or elpizzo, is, it really comes from Psalm 146.5 of trusting in the Lord. It's, it's hope assured, not a hope maybe. So as we enter now, as we're in this Advent season, and and this we're examining now what this hope is. We can actually use the word trust. It's a hope, it's a trust in Almighty God. And and as Advent, as we look to this, it means a coming or arrival. And the season is marked by expectation, this this waiting, this anticipation, this longing. And it's not just an extension of Christmas, rather it's it's a season that links the past the present and the future. See, Advent offers us this opportunity to celebrate not only the birth of Christ, 
but but to be alert for his second coming. You see, Advent looks back in celebration at the hope fulfilled in Jesus' coming, while at the same time looking forward in hopeful and eager anticipation for the coming of Christ's kingdom. When he returns for his people. You see, during Advent, we wait for both. It's an active, assured, hopeful waiting. It's a season often marked by frenzied busyness. Everywhere we turn today, it seems like everyone's in a rush. It's a hectic time of year. But Advent is really this opportunity then for us to set aside the time to prepare our hearts and help us place our focus on a far greater story. It's it's not about us. It's a story of God's redeeming love for our world. It's a season of digging deep into the reality of what it means that God sent his son into the world to be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, some of you who just love to study these sort of things, you may notice that Emmanuel may be spelled with an E or an I. Well, the E is from the Greek and the I is from the Hebrew. So you'll see that difference from Matthew 1.23 and Isaiah 7.14. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into our study of who is Jesus. But it's a season of expectation and preparation, an opportunity to align ourselves with God's presence more than just the hectic season of presence. You see, we're, we're focusing on God's presence, not those presents that are under our tree. So, so wherever you are on your own spiritual journey, I invite you into this proper focus during this Advent season. It's a time that it allows us for uh, when we put all of the life in, in a proper perspective, all those questions and struggles, when we take time to put it all at the feet of Jesus and to, to prepare our hearts for Christ's coming. You see, Advent is a celebration that God comes and God comes to be with us. He is God with us. You see, in the darkness, in the pain, in the chaos, he comes, he makes a way. Let's turn to scripture now. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, here's what we read. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I find it interesting, just as we pause here for just a moment, I find it interesting that God waited to send the angel until after Joseph had received the news. I think the reaction reveals Joseph's character, especially when you contrast his response to those who drug a woman before Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. They were going to stone her for being caught in the act of adultery. And here we see this heart of mercy in Joseph that is also the heart of our Savior. And I believe this may even be a testing of faith that we see here. And often we go through many trials, and therefore we are reminded of the words in First. Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, where we read, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, our faith is going to be tested. It's going to be refined and purified 
terrified and we go through many adversities in this life. In fact, we're told that in John 16, 33, that in this world, we will have trial and tribulation and difficulty, but not to lose hope for he has overcome this world. Let's get back to our story then in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. We continue on in reading there in verse 22. We read, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. That's the way God has been working throughout history. You see, back in the beginning, God worked why he walked freely and openly with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. He, he was with us and humanity enjoyed wholeness and intimacy with God. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, they choose sin in Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 7. And, and this separation then occurs. It divides God and man. And this brokenness of our world that we know far too well is, has become the ongoing result. But did you realize that ever since God has been working toward restoration, healing, and wholeness for all of us and all that he's made? We know this from Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, where we read, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This is the overall story of the Bible, that throughout it we see God making a way and giving and reminding his people of hope that he is still at work. In fact, we, we flip to the end of the Bible, the climax of the entire Bible, we read these words in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Then he who sat on his throne said, Behold, I make all things new. God has been fulfilling and keeping his promises since day one. We see that with God's covenant with Abraham when he was still called Abram. He tells us in Genesis 12, 3, and then you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We flip over to Genesis 28, 15, and God encountered Jacob at Bethel. He renewed that covenant and reinforced the hope rooted in his faithfulness. He says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So again, he's not waiting on Jacob to do his part. God will hold to his ultimate goal to restore and make all things new. But often what happens is a lot of time passes. We get impatient. And just like for the people of Israel, they would cry out to God, How long, O God? This is what the ancient Israelite people would do time and time again, from the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many other prophets. They repeated this throughout history, that as they would devote themselves to God, then there would be immediately a neglect of God. You see that from Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that the next generation would often fall away in in impatience that would lead to doubt, lack of faith, that God wasn't somehow going to fulfill his promises and bring forth hope. There would often be prosperity, and then immediately there would be recession, and, and, and there would be feasts, and then there would be famine, there would be pleasure, and then there would be pain. Yeah, the Hebrew people weren't much different from us after all. So when things got good, 
then they would forget about God. And when things would get bad, well, then they would cry out to God. But through all of this, there was this deep, ongoing longing for God to fulfill his covenant and his promise of a Messiah. In fact, there are 355 prophecies that pointed to the Messiah, and all of them would be fulfilled exactly as predicted through Jesus Christ our Lord. It wasn't just this happy idea that drifted in and out of the the Israelites' consciousness and their culture. This was rather a deep hope, their deepest hope, that sustained them and encouraged them and spurred them on, especially through almost 700 years from the time of Isaiah's writing and this period of uncertain waiting. In fact, there'd be a period of 400 years when they didn't even hear from the prophets. That's a period longer than America has been a nation, and they had to keep holding on to the promises of God. And Isaiah was what we call today a major prophet from many biblical scholars because of the content of all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah and its content, its length of, of material in which God is instructing the people and the prophecies through it. In fact, we'll see that there's 127 writings of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah, and that was 700 years before Jesus Christ would come and he fulfilled them all. And so Isaiah, in many ways, was a voice of hope, e- even though he wasn't very popular all the time, because he would call out the kings for things like saying, uh, you know, God doesn't like the way that you're cheating the poor people, or an, an enemy empire is going to invade and destroy your country. These things wouldn't make him very popular. But he was always a voice of hope because of how often he spoke of the coming Messiah. And in fact, listen to these words. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here we have Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. Nevertheless, the groom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. Again, more hope in the midst of despair. And later on we read in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What hope can you imagine living in this ancient world well before the time of digital or even much written information and hearing a message like that? Can you imagine the hope that would spring in the people's hearts as they were going through great oppression and captivity time and time again? Now, some wonder, did Isaiah understand all of these messages and promises? He was a messenger after all. On some level, I suspect yes, but 
Probably not for all. I mean, he sure didn't know God's timeline for it all and when it would occur because we don't have that prophecy from Daniel until 150 years later. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, he highlights for us a very specific moment in time that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem had to be given, and from that point forward, it would be 483 lunar years, which we translate as 476 solar years, that would land exactly to 30 AD when Jesus Christ would come riding in on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And you can see that that occurred when Artaxerxes declares to Nehemiah to go to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. So perhaps Isaiah thought it would be in his lifetime. Maybe he was just wise enough, having been a messenger for God, for God long enough, to know that God's work stretched for generations and generations. But Isaiah, I believe, was filled with hope. How could he not be? God's promises fueled him and his people to continue to hope for years and centuries. And his vision of God with us, this still fuels our hope inside of us a millennia later. Now, if we read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the short time that we have together, let's try to get through this one. I, I love this particular story. Here's what we read. There, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and, and his name was her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Now, I just have to pause for a moment there. Maybe it's just me, but I would think that talking to an angel would pretty much answer this question. Maybe talking to angels in 3 to 4 BC was more common than it is in 2018 AD. Uh, but for the narrative, it's important because we see here that Zacharias is doing what scriptures tell us to do, to test the spirits, uh, 1 John 4, 1, to see if they're from God. However, I, I don't believe that this testing uh, was, was done in belief, and rather I think it was in disbelief. Despite the fact that this angel is telling him these things, here's what we read. He says later on in verse 19, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, 
who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. And behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself for five, five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, you got to picture it. It's been 400 years since Israel had a clear prophetic voice and message from God. Again, that's, that's longer than America has existed. Technically, the United States is only 242 years old. And so when we put it in proper context there, they've been waiting a long, long time for this kind of good news to come. And when the angel showed up and told Zacharias that he would have a son who will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. <laughs> this is fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 4.6. Zacharias knew this significance. He knew the prophecies of the Messiah, and he also knew that this was a miraculous occurrence all the way around because he knew that they were well advanced in their years. They had been childless, and you could almost just picture, maybe the condescending tones as people would, you know, say negative things. Oh, what a shame for them. Good people, but they don't have any children because this was disrespectful in this culture. This was a shame to a woman in this culture. And, and, and so they had been withheld from having children until now. And here's Zacharias is with unbelief. Who, me? I, I'm old, he tells God, as if this was not possible for God. This, he called this the new John paraphrase, if you will. And God made sure that Zacharias remained literally speechless until his son John was born. But can you imagine the hope that sprung up within him that after all of this time, not only were the prophecies of the Messiah about to be fulfilled, but his son was going to be part of the equation the one who would prophesy coming in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. Hope was alive again. Hope on the earth at its deepest levels was alive again. It was tough to wait on the Lord, especially for 400 years. But here, hope had come. Emmanuel was, was coming. God with us. God was holding fast to all of his promises. He was bringing hope to the hopeless, and he continues to do that today. So we are going to continue in this vein of thought, looking next week to what it means to have hope in God with us that was then and continues today. I hope you've been encouraged just in what we've been able to cover in brief here today. If you want to learn more about our ministry, please visit us at Calvary Fellowship. Fountain Valley. Our website is calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you.